Leaders' Questions with Stuart Lancaster. Thanks to Cisco Systems at Exertis Ireland, providing a secure, intelligent platform for digital business. To hear more, visit intelligentit.ie. Welcome along to another Leaders' Questions with Stuart Lancaster. Our guest this week is Stateside. His name is John Gordon. He's a best-selling author of books like The Energy Bus, The Power of Positive Leadership, and You Win in the Locker Room First. Uh, John, a very good evening to you. How are you doing? Good to be with you guys. Doing great. I guess it's actually morning where you are. It's evening where we are. Um, well, look, you're very welcome to the show. Before I actually speak to you a little bit more, I'm going to ask Stuart why we're talking to you, because you guys have a bit of a connection. Yeah, I mean, the, the way it came about, actually, was um, I was asked to do a podcast for a guy called Michael Gervais in uh, America. And I think it came because I did some work with Atlanta Falcons and Dan Quinn, the American football coach. I assume that's where it came from. Anyway, so it led me to the podcast, Michael's um, um, podcast, and uh, I was then drawn to other podcasts, and uh, I listened to John's, and I thought, that is so much in keeping with what I believe in. So I then bought his book, um, You Win the Locker Room First, uh, read the book, and then went back to Michael and said, do you have a connection, uh, a way I could connect with John? So I then dropped John a line, we had a Skype call, which was a great conversation for me uh, and then obviously on the back of that you and I have started talking about doing this this show where we can invite people in from um, people I've met who I think would add value to leaders you know in Ireland and, and wherever and uh, and hence here we are so hi John. How you doing Stuart? Good to see you again. Yeah, good, good thanks. So the Atlanta Falcons is obviously very important I think in your life as well John we might get to that in a minute but before we do your own backstory is pretty remarkable how you got to the point where you are now a best-selling author and a motivational speaker for some of the biggest sports teams and companies in the world can you take us back to the bit where you realized that that's what you wanted to do Yes I mean I was a competitive athlete I played lacrosse uh, at Division 1 lacrosse at Cornell University uh, played sports my entire life, so I uh, always had that background. Then in my late 20s, early 30s, after you know working in business, opening up restaurants, working for a dot-com, you know, my life started to fall apart. I was really miserable, negative. My wife and I were fighting all the time. And it was during that time where my wife said, you know, I had enough, I've had enough of your negativity. I love you, but I'm not going to spend my life with someone who makes me so miserable. You need to change. And so I knew I needed to change because she said so. And I also knew <laughs> that I needed to change. So that started me on this journey of saying, okay, what am I bored to do? Why am I here? And writing and speaking came to me. I never thought I would do this, you know, ever. But it came to me. I said, okay, well, what am I going to write and speak about? Well, I want to be more positive. And so positivity became not just my learning. It became, you know, my calling and what I was meant to do to share with others. And then from writing these books that I wrote. I wrote The Energy Bus. The Energy Bus became, you know, well-known pretty quickly after Jack Del Rio used it with the Jacksonville Jaguars in 2007. It came out in 2007, and other coaches started to read this book. I started to be invited to speak to teams, and that began this journey of now working with teams and leaders, and then I realized it's not just positivity of what I'm here to do. It's about developing positive leaders and then building positive teams. Can can I, um, you, 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 you know, the best bit, one of the best bits when we had the conversation and when I read the book was actually about um, the story of how the book became successful. Because actually, it wasn't that easy, was it? I mean, when you, when you, um, uh, when you, when you read about it, you, I remember you saying you went on this book tour and you went around. How, how, how actually did it become successful? Because that's the bit that inspired me, really. The fact that you, were, um, you gave up your job and you, know, you wrote this book and then no one seemed to want to buy it. And then suddenly... You know, just through sheer perseverance, you managed to get it off the ground and, and look where you are. Yeah, it was, it, was all, it was all grit. So I wrote the book. Three and a half weeks, I wrote it. It was just pure inspiration. And now I start pitching it. I start putting it out there. I found an agent. It was rejected by over 30 publishers. So no one saw my vision. No one liked it. And I remember my agent telling me, just give up. It's not going to happen. But I couldn't give up because I really felt like I wrote something that could make a difference. And so kept on putting it out there, kept on believing and, and hoping and praying. And finally, John Wiley and Sons agreed to take it on. Shannon Vargo read the book. She was an assistant at the time. She wanted to do the book. Her boss said, don't do it. If it doesn't go well, it could be your career. But she agreed to take it on. So now 
it's coming out. And I remember just being really excited that it's coming out. I asked a friend, what should I do? He said, pray. So I prayed for it to be a bestseller. And it came out. It was a bestseller in Korea. Uh, South Korea, of course. And it was a huge hit in, in South Korea. But not one bookstore in the United States would carry this book. So I went on a 28-city tour, you know, paid for it myself. My publisher wouldn't even support me. I didn't have a lot of money. I'd, I had some restaurants, and I had sold these restaurants to ho hopefully focus on my passion and purpose of writing and speaking. My wife was terrified that I sold our, our restaurants and, and our, our livelihood, but I felt like I needed to focus on this 100%. And so I had a little bit of money, a little money, not a ton, but I went on this tour, paid for it myself, and I went from city to city. There were five people in one city, 10 people in another. And the most people, we had were 100 people in Des Moines, Iowa. They thought Jeff Gordon, the race car driver, was coming. You know, <laughs> And so uh, we, we and that, and that's a true story. That's not just a joke. They really thought <laughs> I showed up. And, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. But I got back from the tour. I was exhausted and tired. But I gave everything I had. And that's when Jack Del Rio got a, a hold of the book. And different people started reading the book. And teachers and coaches. And next thing you know... Uh, bookstores did start carrying it maybe about a year later, but it didn't become a bestseller for like five years. And that was 2007. So here we are 11 years later. It sold over 1.5 million copies, you know, around the world. And it's more popular now than it was five years ago, more popular 10 years ago. And so I don't think, I don't take credit for it at all. It's just something that I've been passionate about and sharing out there and, and believing in the message and just everywhere I go, I just, I just share it. And I know that, now, when I started this, my vision was to inspire and empower as many people as possible, one person at a time. One person. Can I, can I, can I, can I just, so the reason I'm smiling so much is because, um, I guess in a similar way, I, you know, I wanted to try and do the same thing. So I've um, created my own website and it's a coaching one. It's got a leadership club and a coaching club. And so I put a load of content on, a load of rugby coaching, um, skills and drills and all sorts of stuff, and a load of leadership uh, content on how you build great teams and communicate and all that sort of stuff. And um, I've got the Google, Google, the Google Analytics where you can look at how many people see your website. So anyway, I didn't have the login for a while. I thought, you know, there must be quite a few people looking at it. And anyway, so it, it sort of ranges from 20 to 10 to 5. To, so I need to do a better job of promoting it. But uh, I feel very much like John at the moment. I've got a long way to go. You need Jack Yeah, I need Jack Dario. <laughs> And but, but again, it just starts that way, one person at a time. I joke when I started, Stuart, I would say I'm internationally known because I had one friend in London. <laughs> and so I was, I was internationally known. But, uh, you know, I recently spoke in Ireland. Uh, I was in Ireland in, in Dublin speaking to Dell. And I thought, okay, well, now I am internationally known. <laughs> It worked. Can I, before we, I ask you why it rang a bell for Jack Del Rio, why did it ring a bell for you when you're reading the book? What is it when you're going through the stuff that is like, yeah, this makes sense to me? Um, it's the, um, it's the communicate to connect. Um, it's how you build communicate and commitment, how you build commitment within teams. So, um, you know, it goes back to the previous conversations we've had, you know, with other people where we talk about, you know, we don't, building teams is obviously about what you do and how you do it, but it's, it's the why, why, the why you do it and creating those sense of connections between you and your, the players that you're coaching or the management team that you're working with. And, um, once you get that sense of, commitment i think john talks about caring and there's other little things he puts in his book he talks about energy vampires in teams which i think we've talked about before different different way of um, framing it uh and so there's just so many little things i mean my my guide to a book is uh, when i read a book how many notes how many times do i draw a line or something and i'll go through john's book and i think mm, there's a lot of lines in this so it clearly uh it clearly did the job for me and, and very similar to my philosophy i guess when Jack Del Rio was, was coming and taking your book, what was he taking out of it, John? Why do you think he was drawn to it? And, and why have so many sports teams and coaches found in your books stuff that resonates with them? Well, I, I think it's because we're like-minded. Like, Stuart and I are like-minded. So when he's reading this book, he's like, yes, I believe that. I need that. I'm not saying anything that's, you know, uh, out of the ordinary. I'm not sharing rocket science. I'm, I'm sharing the basic principles, and I think great coaches like Stuart, they get it, and they realize, okay, these are really simple ideas, but we can act on them. And so with Jack Del Rio, he really got the negative piece out of it, the energy vampire piece. I remember him sitting down with me and saying, you know, I've been allowing these negative energy vampires to get me down, and I realized reading your book that i got to be more positive than the negativity that I face. 
And I can't allow their negativity to impact me. And we got to deal with the negativity. Like the energy bus talks about confronting the energy vampires. You win in the locker room first, talks about confronting the energy vampires. Just wrote a new book, The Power of Positive Leadership, how to deal with negativity. Positive leaders don't just focus on the positive. This is reality. We, we deal with the negative that exists. So I, I think I'm, I'm speaking the language that, that every coach and team understands and they know what they need to do. And then this puts it in a language in a very simple way that allows them to take action on it. But it was really Mike Smith who actually was on that staff with Jack DeRio. He was a defensive coordinator. And he was the one who actually gave it to Jack and said, Reed, do this. Well, then Mike Smith became the coach of the Atlanta Falcons. He was there seven years before Dan Quinn got there. And Mike's the one who really you know, embraced it in a, in a big way. And then Mike and I wrote You Win in the Locker Room First together about like what went right with him at the Falcons, but then what went wrong? Why was he fired? Why did Dan Quinn come in as, have to come in as the coach? And so we talk about that, a very refreshing path of you know what he did wrong as a leader, but what he did right, and then these seven C's to build a winning team. I think it's always the stuff that you have the honesty about your appraisal of why things failed that is so compelling for us on the outside because everybody, everybody who follows the NFL or the Falcons will have seen what happened to the team and they'll have their assumptions about why it failed. But for, for them to put that down in a book and explain, okay, well, this is the nuances of these are the decisions that we got wrong, the ones that we would go back and change if we could, but that's not how life works. Um, and I think that's probably where this whole idea of... Um, the iterative process of becoming a leader is something that we have to continuously embrace and talk about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly um, for me, you know, I, we had great success coaching the England the England team, but equally, you know, on the on the biggest stage, the the failure. And um, what 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 helps me um, in in a certain way um, deal with it is helping other teams learn from what I could have done better. Now, I haven't written a book um, because I don't feel it's the right place or the right time to do that, but I'm more than happy to share what I learned with teams and organisations to help them improve and learn from the things I possibly could have done better as the leader or what could have happened in the environment. And we're talking about you know, the most incredible pressure um, on, on a team, a home World Cup, you know, it's the uh, um, third biggest sport event in the world. So, you know, it, it has um, helped me deal with it by, by sharing what I've learned. And I think there's, there's uh, a lot of lessons that, that hopefully I've, I've passed on. Did you read... You went in the locker room first after the World Cup. Yeah, it was after. Yeah, no, no, it was. Uh, I read it less than six months ago. I think um, I'd need to check, uh, John, with you. But I think one thing that Mike said in the book about he should have fought, he fought, could have fought for the culture harder. Would that be right? Yep, yep. He said that he um, after their their loss to San Francisco in the NFC Championship game, you know, they were one play away from going to the Super Bowl, the biggest you know game in in America. Uh, they became an organization that was focused on the outcome and the results and the expectations of the world and of others and their ownership. And they got away from all the little things that made them successful and their culture. And so Mike says he allowed it to happen. And as all this pressure was coming in from the outside, he should have built the culture even more and focused even more on the culture. But he got caught up in, if I just win, they'll leave me alone. And that's where we fall short and we, we go down the wayside when that happens. No, we got to continue to invest and build the culture, doing the little things that got us there. I love what you said, Stuart, about, you know, the world stage. There's nothing more pressurized, nothing more like stressful than what you do mm. as a leader. That's why I love coaching. I love what Stuart has to deal with on a daily basis. And I admire them so much because there's no more, there's nothing more pressure in the world. Like when you, when I fail on a, on a test or when I fail on a talk, you know, okay, maybe 500 people will be there, maybe a thousand at the most. When you fail on a world stage, millions mm. see your fail. That's mm. rough. Mm. That is rough. It is rough. And it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's rough. It's not just on you as well. It's rough on, you know, the family and the friends and, and everyone around you. Um, there's absolutely no doubt. Um, but it's, it's, it's also, it's what you sign up to. Oops, sorry. It's what, it's what you sign up to. And I think... Um, uh, from my point of view, you know, I knew when I took on the job, you know, it was, uh, there was a lot of work to do on the cultural side of things and, and get the team in, in the right place. And it was a race against time to get the team ready. But um, 
I knew that the consequences would be huge if, if we didn't achieve it. How much- the, fans don't, the fans don't see you as human either. The fans forget that you're a human being. Yeah. They see that as a, a figure, almost like a, a TV character. They don't see that you're a real person with yeah. real feelings, yeah. with a family that is really deeply hurt when you don't succeed yeah. or when you're facing criticism. Yeah. John, your philosophy is obviously based around positivity. Um, how how did that work with the Falcons when things were, when that culture was dissipating, when it was just slipping through the fingers of the team and the group? Um, did you have to teach them to think about the potential for failure? or how, how does that actually work? How do you deal with that failure? Well, I spoke to the Los Angeles Rams this year. The Los Angeles Rams were 4-12 and 12 last year and 11-5 and five this year. When, when Mike Smith and Matt Ryan took over, Matt Ryan was the rookie quarterback, Mike Smith, the rookie coach, they were 4-12, and 12 and they went to 11-5. and five. So right away, we turn around the culture. So am I, am I the reason for their success? Of course not. I spoke to the Cleveland Browns two years ago. <laughs> and, you, know, you know anything about the Cleveland Browns? I mean, they are just, you know, a horrible team in the United States. They have yet to win. Their culture is horrible. I mean, it's just really bad. But I spoke to that team. And what I always say is, never the talk it's never the book it's it's really always the leadership and the culture and it's reinforcing that message of positivity so when i speak and i work with the team I'm, I'm sharing the principles i'm talking about the standards and then it's up to the coach and the team and the leadership to, to rise up to meet those standards and so what i noticed that there was a building of the culture there was a lot of optimism belief and then after that loss that we just talked about after that loss I noticed that they said that if we don't make it to the playoffs, if we don't make it to the Super Bowl, this season's a failure. And I heard them talk about that during the season one time after a game, and I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Like, the messaging was not there. What I had talked about in training camp was the complete opposite of that. And and I knew right then and there that it was not going to be good. It was not going to be good. Now, they also had injuries. They had a lot of injuries. And John Madden said that, you know, winning is a great deal. It, it covers up what stinks about your team. So when you're winning, you don't really notice that things are bad. But when you're losing, it all becomes exposed. Well, their injuries, the culture, and everything really came to a head that, that second bad year. That second bad year. And that's when he was fired after that. I truly believe they should have kept him. And I really believe he would have turned it around with, again, the good draft picks, with healthy players and so forth. But he didn't get that chance. But we also talked about the fact that the fact that he got fired was a great option to write this book that has helped so many people. So we really believe there's a reason for everything. But I did notice that it wasn't about optimism. It was really about they were too attached to the outcome, and they were worried about the failure rather than attacking the process. I just spoke to the Los Angeles Dodgers. I've worked with the Los Angeles Dodgers, the baseball team, for the last three years. They lost the World Series last year in Game 7. And I talked to them about that, and I shared the difference between the Falcons and then the great teams that lose a big game and come back and win the championship the following year. And the biggest difference is they're not defending a position. They're not defending a ranking. They're not defending expectations. They're attacking and they're obsessed with the process of just like going in there and just dominating every game to ultimately win. But it's not about the outcome. They just focus so much on that process. Did the England team get too wrapped up in that fear um. or the... You know, John said something really interesting then um, that um, resonated with me about the actual game, about um, how staying um, on task um, and with the process um, during the game. So there was a moment in the game, we were 22-12 up. Um, I think we conceded a, a penalty, 22-15. Um, um, and uh, Wales um, scored a try out of nothing, really. Um, and... Uh, uh, I can't remember the exact score, but, but certainly they scored a try out of nothing, and suddenly the game had gone from, from us winning 22-12 to 25-all. And I could see the players and feel the players, even from where I was sat in the stand, thinking about what had happened in the past, i.e., oh my God, they've just scored that try out, out of nothing. And the consequences of that is, we might not win this game. Mm. And, and so then you, you, you go away from the process, and you're worrying about the, the past or the future. And um, uh, that, that moment... Um, and the next 10 minutes, um, we had opportunities to, to close out the game, to win the game. And, and even when we were pushed into touch and we could have had, a, we had another line out, we then knocked the ball on from that line out. So 
staying in the moment is absolutely key to um, high performance. And we um, uh, talk about um, redhead and bluehead. So redhead being you are um, distracted, you are um, thinking about the past or worrying about the future, you've made a mistake and that uh, bluehead is in the moment. And um, what we try to do is try to make sure the players, the team stay in the blue and the players stay in the blue. And if you see someone in the red, then you say, hey, get back in the blue. And just trying to give them triggers and little things that they can do. And uh, I know the New Zealand rugby team in 2007, they had a very similar moment in the quarterfinal of the Rugby World Cup when they lost um, against um, uh, France. And um, uh, they employed this company, which helped them on that process, which certainly helped them in the lead-up to the 2011 World Cup final win, which they won 8-7 yeah. at home. In that last moment, in that last play, when they're continuing to recycle the ball, apparently messages are coming down, exit, 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 and McCall's like, no, I'm, I'm very confident that we're going to be able to continue. And that's the, the he had decided that yeah. they had the blue heads, yeah. the coaches had the red heads, and he was just going to stay and do it. Totally. And, you know, there's apparently there's still tension to this day between Henry and McCall when they talk about that moment, but... But also, but, I mean, talk about um, the Ireland rugby team in the grand, you know, the France game. You know, 41 phases and a drop goal. I mean, that was unbelievable, you know, staying in the moment and not panicking under pressure. John, how do you coach that? And particularly, how do you coach it in an American football team when you know that there's going to be a play that goes against you, that there'll be a turnover, a fumble? Like, when, when you're talking to somebody as big as the Atlanta Falcons, particularly in training camp when there could be 90 bodies, how do you get those guys to focus? Yeah, you're just sharing the message and really sharing truth with them. You share these principles of truth that you know works and... The best way to be in the moment, to be honest, is to love it. You know, fear is going to come in, and fear causes you to look outside. And what we teach them is don't look outside, look inside. Outside is the noise, the worry, the expectation, the crowd, the fear of failure. That's all outside. Inside is your love, your passion, your purpose, your joy for the game. And if you love it, you won't fear it. So it's really helping them understand that when they are loving the playing, when they're loving the moment, loving the competition. They're not going to be in fear. Love casts out fear. So if you love it, you won't fear it. So there's really a lot of power in that. It's helping them understand inside out. Like, don't focus on the outside. Get back to inside. You have red and blue, right? Or, you know, that's the same, same type of thing. In, are we outside or are we inside? Get back to inside. You know, stop thinking about the outside. Just play. We create inside out. That's where the power is. I was with a NBA team. I was, I was walking across the court. And there was a head coach there and a superstar player. And they said, hey, John, what's a bigger impact on a team? Home field advantage in baseball or home court advantage in basketball? So I thought for a moment, I said, well, what do you think? And they each had different reasons. That, and I said, neither. When you know the outside is just noise and it has no power over you, we create inside out. I shared them the powers on the inside. That's where we create from that the outside has no power. It's all about inside out. And the superstar player said, that's what I think. He said 98% of the guys in the league, 98% believe in home court advantage. So it affects them. I know it isn't true. So I just go do what I do and play my game. Think about that. 98% are believing the lie that something outside can impact them. So it does. They're believing in a lie. Because I know the truth. So he lives the truth. And there's power in truth. So I just go play my game. It's why he's a superstar. And so the more we can teach them that mindset. So I'm not teaching strategy. I don't believe in strategy. I teach truth. And then from truth, you then find the strategy that works for you in that moment. One of the themes we've been talking about over the course of the podcast is we explain why you get people to examine the reasons why they're doing something, either as an individual or as a group. And, and from that, everything else kind of flows. And, and that's effectively what you're talking about, the truth. So... Um, I guess, again, it's next, a, and it's a next play mentality. So we also say, you know, next play. Like, it doesn't matter what happened on the last play. Next play. Next play. That's a, that's a very popular term here in the States. Next play. So in basketball, especially. Like, whatever happened on the last play is the last play. So it's about just the next play. When I was visiting the baseball teams in spring training uh, last year, I was with like four different teams because they're all in the same area in Phoenix during spring training. And they kept on saying, you know, John, it's hard to stay positive because baseball is a game of failure. If you're a Hall of Famer, you're failing two out of three times. If you're an average player, you're failing three out of four times. It's a game of failure. I said, I don't see it that way. I told the teams, no, change your mindset. It's not a game of failure. It's a game of opportunity because every at-bat is an opportunity to make the next one great. So it's letting go of the past, next play, 
next moment. Because that last flight is not going to have any bearing on your next one unless you let it affect you. I can see why so many teams and sports organizations like this message because it, it creates a sense of we're going to be aggressive in our game plan and we're going to attack whatever happens next. Regardless, if, you're on, if you have the ball or if you, you don't have the ball, if you're defending or if you're attacking, it's like, okay, everybody, if they have this uh, commitment to attack whatever the play is, yeah, I, th- I think I think John, just a, just a question, just on, on the point that Joe's making. So, there's a couple of things you say in the book. One is love tough, um, and one is I think it's humble and hungry. Is that humble and hungry behaviors? Yeah. Can you just expand on those, just for people who are listening? Yeah. It, well, what we're talking about here is the cultural level. We're talking about the team building level and the individual performance level, and that's where leaders must be. We create a great culture. We build a great team. You have to be a connected team. And then we have to have each person performing at their highest level with optimism, with belief. So you really have to engage and affect all three levels of a team and organization. And that's what great coaches, great leaders like Stuart do. So love tough is just one of these examples where instead of tough love, I believe in love tough. And love tough is really what makes a great team. You combine love and accountability together. So we are accountable to each other, to a set of standards but love must come first. And if love comes first, the more we have a relationship, the more we're connected, the more committed we will be. This is probably my biggest area of my work with teams now is to help them become connected. Because I know and we know the more connected you are as a team, the more committed you will be to each other, the more you will fight for each other. But you don't get that from tough love. Andy Stanley said rules without relationship lead to rebellion. So you can't have rules that make a team tough. You can't have just grinding on each other all the time and like really irritating each other. No, you got to love each other, build a relationship, really commit together, and then you will fight for each other. A great example is, you know, I don't know if you guys follow Australian rules football, but the Richmond team won this year. Richmond team won for the first time in 36 years. Well, they read you went in the locker room first as well, and they did the hero archip highlight exercise, the Triple H exercise as a way to connect. They attribute there's a big article in a magazine down there. I was actually on a radio show there talking about it. They attribute that exercise for bringing them so close together, becoming so connected, really developing a love for each other because they got to know each other's story. Guys were really just bawling. Like these tough, strong guys were literally breaking down, crying, sharing their story. But from there, that vulnerability, they became a connected, committed team. They went up winning a championship first time in 36 years. So there's power in love tough. And again, love tough says... We're going to love each other, but we're going to push each other. We're going to challenge each other to get better. So this is not like, oh, let's just love each other and just get along, be a great family. No, we're here to be a great team. So we're going to love each other. But we're going to push each other, challenge each other to get better, to improve, to raise our standards and our expectations to be the best that we can. Yeah. Can, can, yeah. You, can you explain to the, the people listening what, what you meant by the three H's? Because I think it's a really good um, strategy for people and, and teams to build those um, connections that you describe. Yeah, we, I do this in corporate teams. You know, I work a lot with corporate teams. It's probably where I make more of my, most of my money in my living. You know, sports teams don't pay a lot. And so <laughs> I, work a lot with, I work a lot with corporate teams, and it works just as effective there. We did it the other day. But you have each person go around on the team, and they share who is their hero. Like, who's your hero? A hardship that you faced, a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. So what's, what's the hardship? And then what's a highlight in your life that you feel proud of or that really makes you light up? A lot of people say the birth of their child or they got married or, you know, a great game they had, a great moment that helped them realize that they could do this, whatever it might be. But when you start to hear these stories, incredible. I mean, it's just so powerful what happens when a team does this. You can do this with your family. You do it with a group of friends. You do it with your work team, a sports team. Just so powerful. I have a lot of friends who are Navy SEALs. You know, they're they're in the armed forces. They do a lot of work with professional teams. A lot of teams in the states now bring in these Navy SEALs to work with them for team building, and they do these exercises where you, you jump in the water, the ice cold water. And I, I, I joke with my Navy SEAL friends like, I don't believe you have to almost drown together to become. <laughs> I really believe you get connected by being vulnerable and really yeah. get to know each. Other. Yeah. No. So that's the practical stuff that people can actually do to try and, and build culture because we, we keep talking about have a good culture, but that has to be worked on again. That has to be, there have to be practical things that people can, 
take from listening to this and go, okay, well, there's an exercise that we could do. What else can people actually do to make sure that a culture is honest and that it does have integrity and that you do have a freedom to challenge your coworkers and your teammates in a way that isn't going to automatically lead to a, a, a fight if it's a training ground or, you know, a recriminations if it's a workplace? I, th I think um, there's a great book, actually, um, um, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, um, by a guy, Patrick Lencioni, I think he is. And uh, that's a story about a CEO who goes into an organization and she basically changes the culture of the organization. And the bottom layer where she felt was broken was the absence of trust. And what she does is, is rebuild the team with trust. I think we've talked about this before where, you know, as the leader of the organization or the leader of the team, you're the first person who has to be able to earn the trust of the people that you're leading and display that vulnerability. So, you know, doing the exercise that John's just described, I think it'd be brilliant if the head coach or the leader goes first and you open yourself up to the team and then they, um, and, and they can see that you can be trusted and, you know, um, and then and, and there's lots of different things that, that we've done to try and create connections between each other and to the team. And one thing I did with the England team was I wrote to the parents of the players and asked them to write back to me about what does it mean to see your son play for England? And I asked them to write to five different people who'd help their son become that England player. Wow. And, and, I, and I did it without, um, without the players knowing. I basically said, listen, and, and I said to the parents of this letter, listen, we all have to do this because if, you know, Johnny, if Johnny doesn't get his letter back, then I can't give them all out and he's left there without his... Uh, is, is, so anyway, they all, they all sent their email responses in and it was, you know, it was parent followed by grandparent, followed by a, a primary school teacher, followed by brother, followed by girlfriend. So they all came back in, um, you know, 30-odd players, five different um, things each that, that, that basically said, this is, this is what it means to see you, you know, how proud we are of you and what you've achieved. And it was incredibly, incredibly powerful. And um, um, anyway, so I had them all put them onto um, certificates. Into, uh, and put them into A4 envelopes. And we had a, um, a guest speaker came into the, to the team and he spoke about um, playing for his country and another guy came in who uh, fought for his country, he talked about that. And I showed this motivational video about the players playing at their best and what a great team we've become. And I said, oh, I've written to your parents. And they all looked at me as if they said, you've done what? And uh, I gave them all their certificates in an envelope sealed. And during the course of the evening, I could see them one by one opening them. And just watching their reactions, some, you know, obviously visibly moved to tears. And, um, and it, it was such a, it was probably the most significant moment in the, in the development of the connection between each other and the team and the reason why we were all going to work hard for this particular team. Um, and actually, the, the footnote, which I, I never realised had happened, um, my wife had done the same for me without me knowing. So wow. she, she'd written to all my friends, my friends from primary school, secondary school, university, people I played rugby with, so there's a lot more than five, and um, people I taught at school with, and what it meant for them to see me coaching the England team. And so I didn't, obviously I didn't realise this happened. My, my PA came up to me at the end of the evening and said, oh, there's some paperwork for you to have a read um, when you get in. So I was lying on my bed about two o'clock in the morning, absolutely exhausted. You know, you've committed so much emotional energy to this um, event to try and get everyone in the right place and connect with each other and, and connect to the cause. And I opened this envelope and I was like, What's this? And anyway, then, then I'm sat there for like an hour like, thinking, oh my God, you know, this is uh, incredible. So yeah, that was, uh, that, so there's so many, I mean, if you, if you can think, if you stop from the day job and you pause to think creatively, how can we create get a, better connections with each other? Then it's actually not that hard to do, but the difficulty is stopping from answering the email, answering the phone, getting on the day job. It's actually buying yourself time to think about ways we can connect. And often, you know, I often say to the coaches who work alongside me, Let's get out of our laptops and let's get on the gym floor and just go and talk to them and say, How's, what's happening at home? How's your day been? And, and, you know, gradually, I mean, Wayne Smith, the New Zealand coach, he talks about a, um, a connection being like an invisible cord between me and the player. And the more you connect with people, the thicker the cord grows. So eventually you, you connect with all the players in your team. It's a bit like a spider's web if you're looking down on top and the cords are getting thicker and thicker. And... You know, if you, if you feel that you haven't connected with that player, then you go back to them and just come in for just five minutes, let's have a coffee, see how you're getting on. And often it's nothing more than that. You know, you can do the exercise like John's described, but it's often just the little conversations to show that you care. And I, I want to add to that, I think that's uh, brilliant what you shared, Stuart. And 
it's really about one-on-one connection. So what I encourage teams to do is just seek out one person a day, one person a day to have a meaningful connection with on your team. Some conversation, communication, who haven't you connected with and seek out that person that day. And if everyone on the team is doing that every day, because I might find one guy, another guy finds another guy, whatever it may be, you're going to have that meaningful connection over time that's going to have a, a powerful impact. But I, I, like you said, it has to be practical. We have to find ways to do it. The other thing we have to do is make sure we have a difficult conversation. Our friend Michael Gervais, with, who works for the Seahawks, Pete Carroll instituted Tell the Truth Mondays. Mm. And Tell the Truth Mondays is every Monday after a Sunday game, we get together and talk about what went wrong. Like, mm. what went right? What went wrong? What can we learn from that? How can we get better? And so you have to have the difficult conversations as well as a team. And Michael, what he tells us is you have to really come together and say, this is how we do things. This is our culture. This is how we have difficult conversations. This is how we deal with, with emotionally charged issues. This is how we're going to confront them. And when we do that as a team, we have these difficult conversations. We talk about the tough issues. We grow closer from that. Scheduling is actually a practical thing. The, the making it be Monday, where you have that that honesty. Like I guess you know, because obviously we're talking here about big organizations and, and big teams and team ethics. But finding the individual space as a manager, whatever your job is, to actually get the brain space to go. I need to have that individual connection with somebody. It's like almost a timetable or a refresher course for yourself in the middle of your of your day job. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Um and that's the challenge of being a leader. You know, I, I found it a huge challenge. There were so many relationships and connections that I was trying to maintain, like spinning plates, not just within the team, within the board and the club country relationship and the media and commercial partners. And, you know, and, and, and as John said, you know, you've got your wife and your kids and, and all those connections, and your friends who want you know, to be part of what you're doing. So it's actually um, emotionally and mentally draining, you know, so you've got to make sure you look after yourself, you know, I would get to bed early just so I had the energy to go again, and um, so yeah, it, it, it's the scheduling, it's the, the Tell the Truth Monday, it's the same as a review for us, you know, in a, uh, in a rugby context, you know, we play a game Saturday, we have a Monday morning review, and I'm very, can- very cautious sometimes to, you know, if there's players, you know, if there's been an error made and a, a certain player, you know, is responsible, you know, I'd always try and pull them first, say, listen, I'm going to Bring this up, but I'm not making it personal because, you know, we need to do it for the betterment of the team. And but and they, they'll always go, no, it's fine, coach. You don't don't worry about it. Um, you know, so as long as you do it in the right way, you can have those moments with the, the moments of intimacy with the team, and they are very private. And you know, the where you have that meeting, how you have that meeting, what you say in that meeting, sets the tone for the week. And you've you've got to get it right. You've got to get it right as a coach. And if you if you get it wrong on a consistent basis, then you lose credibility in the eyes of the people that you're leading, and ultimately you lose the dressing room. So you talk about win the dressing room, you lose the dressing room if you get that bit wrong. John, have you found that it's the, the, the philosophy that you have? It actually needs to be embraced across all levels of the organisation. That um, people can kind of pick and choose a little bit from various sources, and that unless actually you commit to a single continuous stream of thinking and philosophy that you can be a bit confused in the messaging. Yeah, it's called alignment. You really have to have alignment from the ownership, the GM, the coach, and the team. If you're talking about a company, CEO, the leadership team of the CEO, the managers, the employees. So we have to create an alignment where everyone is embracing the shared vision and a greater purpose. They also have a shared belief of, of what we're here to do and why we're here to do it. And then there's this coming together to work together as one team, one united team, one organization. I interviewed Alan Mullally. Alan Mullally turned around Ford in 2006, and Ford was very scattered, very regionalized. Numerous teams instead of one team. So he is the leader, CEO, the new CEO of Ford, came in and said, we have to become one Ford with one team, one plan, one goal. Everyone has to know the plan, embrace the plan, and relentlessly work towards the plan. Incredible advice. They were losing $14 billion. He had them profitable in a few short years. One of the greatest leadership feats in history of any kind, you could say. He accomplished that. And that's what we have to do at all. Have you seen teams turn it around when they've lost dressing rooms? Is it possible for coaches to get a dressing room back after they've lost it? Oh, wow. Um... 
only if they have the difficult conversation. You know, Stuart talked about Patrick Lencioni's book, Five Dysfunctions. Patrick's a great friend. Yeah, you have to have me going to talk about the dysfunctions and how we can get better from them. But if you're willing to accept what went wrong and what we could do better and what we can change, and if the team could do that and have that raw conversation, yes. Otherwise, if there's egos, if people are defensive, if people are covering their, covering their own turf and their own future, you're done. I mean, look at these teams that have success, right? They have a lot of success, and then everyone wants to get paid more. Everyone starts to get in their ego. Everyone gets a little jealous of each other. And that team does not have sustained success as a result of that. We see it all the time in professional sports in the States. And it's one of the biggest challenges to sustain success. The world wants short-term success. Like, Stuart, we want you to succeed this year. We don't care how you do it. But to have a long-term success, you have to do things the right way to build a team the right way. The outside world doesn't always see that. So you actually have to go counter-cultural to what the world wants. That's the hard part, isn't it? Yeah, win in the short term and build for the long term. Yeah, 100%. do these two things which are actually opposite, really. Yeah, yeah. and uh, again, part of the challenge for me at the time was, um, so I think in my first international game in charge of England, we had 220 caps in the starting 15. Uh, um, so that's not many international caps. Um, you know, when you compare it to maybe Ireland and England, who played the game recently, both would have had 700-odd, I would say. Um, so we were always behind the eight ball in terms of experience. Um, and, you know, I was focusing my energy on creating the, conne- um, the connection and the, uh, not the connection, not just the connection um, internally, i.e. the players to players and coaches to coaches, but gaining the connection outwards to the RFU staff, to the wider grassroots rugby um, supporters of England, to the, um, the, 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 the country, you know, trying to create that, that extended connection. And using different tool, tools to do that. So, and then, you know, as soon as you get one defeat, you know, the pressure reigns in from the media and you've got to hold your nerve. And, you know, there were definitely times during the three years towards the World Cup where I remember we played, we lost um, against New Zealand, no, we lost against South Africa and Australia. And we had New Zealand the next game. And I knew that if, if we lost the New Zealand game, which was obviously highly likely given the fact they hadn't been <laughs> beaten, um, I was under huge pressure going to the Six Nations, and all the work that we were doing would, probably the external pressure would really begin to tell on even the strong culture that we created. Fortunately, we beat the New Zealanders in that, in that memorable game at Twickenham in 2012, and, and that bought us time then to, to grow the team. So you do, you do need to win in the short term, um, and that's the pressure of international coaching in particular, because um, it's such a... Uh, such, such a pressurised environment, and you only get maybe a week to prepare. You know, one of the challenges of international coaching as well is you bring players together from 12 different teams in England and you've got to connect them together. So they are, bit, not bitter rivals, but they are rivals in mm. terms of Le- Leicester versus Bath versus Saracens versus Gloucester. And um, you've got to try and say, right, that you are connected to each other at your clubs, but now we're going to connect together even though you're playing against each other. And you're all used to being number one for your club team and now one of you is going to have to be number two for the international team and one of you is have, might have to be the number three. And that, that is a big challenge. And I think that's something that Ireland have done really well, where you know, there's the interprovincial rivalry between Connor and Ulster, Munster and Leinster, but they will put that to one side and they'll be good mates and connected playing for Ireland. But I don't think that's happened overnight. I think that's taken... I mean, you'd know this better than me. Yeah, well, there was the famous meeting back in 2009. Yeah, there was a I team meeting yeah, yeah, where Rob Carney stands up and says, I think the Munster lads are more committed to playing for Munster than they are for Ireland. And everybody from Munster kind of has an inhale of breath and then goes... Maybe you're right, and the the peace breaks out afterwards. But it did require one of those, those honest conversations. Love yeah. tough, isn't it, John? Love tough. Yeah, I love that. I love that they actually had that conversation. <laughs> it changed the course of Irish rugby history. Certainly, um, it, it brought us that Grand Slam, and it brought us that unified, and it kind of showed them all what they could do. Um, a couple of things strike me about that. Are you different now? Would you go back now? And because obviously, John talks about we have to look inside, not outside. It was the outside pressure that was. The most noticeable thing that you, you spoke about there when you talked about that, the first thing you talked about was the outside pressure after losing the two games. Would I do that any different? Yeah. Um, what have you learned that would actually, if you could tap yourself on the shoulder and go, don't do that? Uh, yeah, no, well, that's a good question. It is a good question. Um, I think if I divided my job at the time into leadership management and coaching, coaching being the on-field day-to-day 
work with the players. Leadership being the communication connection piece, you know, inspiring the vision, um, painting a pathway where we're all going to go together. Uh, and then management being the day-to-day, week-to-week logistical running of the operation, let's call it. I wish I'd delegated more of the managerial stuff to other people. You know, I, I, in my mind, I was thinking, well, I'm quite good at this and I don't, can't really think of anyone else to do it, so I'll just do it. Um, and in hindsight, the model that works in America, I mean, having been to now, you know, the Atlanta Falcons and seeing how the head coach-GM relationship works, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that's the model I would have, um, uh, where the GM is doing all the managerial stuff and the recruitment and the board and, and all that. So you've got to do your media, except, but then you can concentrate your mind on leadership and coaching. And, you know, if I divided my time up as national coach, I would say 5% was coaching, 45% management, 50% leadership. And uh, You clearly uh, love the coaching. Uh, yeah, I love the coaching, but, but equally I felt it's a bit like being a head teacher at a school. You end up becoming the head teacher and don't teach anymore. And uh, when I've come back to Leinster, the beauty of this job now that I'm doing is that um, uh, Guy used to be and Leo Cullen, you know, Leo do a lot of the leadership stuff, a lot of the managerial stuff. I don't have to do any managerial stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I can do with the leadership bit, you know, trying to help, help Leo there and just the coaching. And that's the thing I would have, uh, I would have done differently. John, when you were talking earlier about um, asking people not to look out and to look in, you know, the sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt us. That, that rhyme we teach kids, which they listen to and they go, what are you talking about? Every time somebody calls me a name, it hurts really badly. Like, it, you know, it's a... Be confident, stupid. Like it's all these things that we tell ourselves. How do you get good at it? You you understand the truth, and you know that those outside words are just words, and they only bother you if you let it. Like let's be honest. Uh, one time someone calls us a name, and we're ready to fight. Another time they call us a name, and we're like, yeah, whatever. We're in a good mood. We're going to a party. We're going to have lunch with the friends. We don't even deal with it. It's never the event. It's never the circumstances. It's important to understand the circumstance doesn't have power over you. It's always your state of mind in that moment. So the fact that it bothered you is just letting you know that your, your state of mind was lowered in that moment. There are times when the calls don't go your way during the game from the referees, right? And you get upset, right? There are other times that you don't bother. You just go next play. Was it the call? No, it's always your state of mind. If it was the call, it would be 100%. If the traffic is what bothered you each time, and sometimes you're in a good mood during traffic, it would be the traffic if it was 100%. It's not, it's, it's not the traffic. It's never the circumstance. It's always a state of mind. And once you understand that, there's tremendous power and you recognizing that. And anytime something does bother you, it lets you know in that moment, oh, I'm looking outside, not inside. But it's actually a signal. It's a guide of where you're looking. The New Zealand team have um, triggers. For one of them, I think it's like making a... Grab, grab the wrist, yeah. Grab the wrist. Yeah. There's, there's definitely others who um, talk about the, the colour of the carpet, whatever whatever mm. sport they're doing or whatever. It's like, oh, I'm not in the moment. What colour is the carpet? And they go, okay, this carpet... I don't actually know what colour the carpet is here. I can't tell. <laughs> it's kind of a kind of charcoal, maybe. Um, are there triggers for people that you teach um, when you're dealing with sports teams to, to go, okay, I'm, I'm looking outside. I need to look in. Uh, no, I don't really. I mean, sports psychologists may do that. For me, it's not really a trigger. It's just letting them know your feelings are your guide. Like any moment you feel fear, if you're feeling fear and worried, that's a guide. If you have a negative thought, that's a guide. Here's what I know. Would you ever choose to have a negative thought? I don't think so. No. No. Whatever <laughs> you don't think so. I'm, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't. <laughs> would ever choose to have a negative thought? No one would ever choose one. So why... Would we blame ourselves for the negative thoughts? Those thoughts come in, but you don't have to believe the negative thought. So what I tell people is when those negative thoughts are coming in, you do have a choice. Don't believe those negative thoughts. Fear is a liar. Fear will always lie to you. Don't believe the lies. Instead, know the truth. And the truth is you were great yesterday. You can be great today. The truth is you've been great in your career. You'd be great right now. The truth is there's greatness inside of you. You have a desire to be great because... There's a feeling in you that knows that, you, that greatness is a potential of yours. So you keep on working towards that. So what I help athletes do, I help people of all types do, is understand not to believe the lie. Don't allow the negativity in. Instead, you feed that positive thought. So my best advice is talk to yourself instead of listen to yourself. 
if you listen to yourself, you hear all the negative fear and the doubts. But if you talk to yourself, you can feed yourself with the words and the encouragement you need to keep on moving forward. I got this from Dr. James Gills. He's the only person on the planet to complete six double Ironman triathlons, which means you do an Ironman and 24 hours later you do another one. And the last time he did, he was 59 years old. 59, the last time he did it. So he told me that his secret was I talk to myself instead of listen to myself. <laughs> Well, that's a, not a bad piece of practical advice to finish <laughs> up on. Um, John, if anybody wants to get on the uh, course of your books, what's the, the best starting point? Bear in mind that the audience here is, uh, is very sports-orientated. So is you win in the locker room first the, not a bad starting point? I would actually start with the energy bus because that's the one that's been read by you know, hundreds of thousands of coaches and leaders you know, around the world. So I would start with the energy bus because that's the foundation. And then I would read you win in the locker room after that. And then I would go to the power of positive leadership. Good stuff. Now, listen, John, really appreciate your time. Um, I know you've got, you're a very busy man. So, you know, we're very privileged to have you on here. And, uh, um, you know, hopefully if you come to Ireland um, again at some point, um, I'll still be here. Drew will be here <laughs> and we'll have a Guinness together. I would love that. And, and really, I'm honored to be with you guys. And I have to tell you, when I was in Ireland, my wife is Irish. She's a Carol. So my wife is a Carol. And when we were in Ireland, I just felt like that was my place. I'm like, these are my people. My wife's like, not Irish. I am. I go, yeah, but they're my people. I just really felt at home there. One of my favorite places on earth was, was Dublin. I just loved it. So, um, you know, just thanks so much for having me. And I will be back. So look forward to seeing back. John Gordon, great stuff. Thanks very much for joining us. The energy vampire, it's a concept I like the idea of. Uh, <laughs> we all know plenty of them. <laughs> Fortunately, there's not many. No. There isn't many. Um, and uh, I think, uh, um, you know, they, they stand out. If you get the culture right, they stand out. And usually the culture and the environment means that they either change their behaviours to not be an energy vampire yeah. and uh, be an energy giver. And uh, um, if not, then um, they need to move on. Yeah, and look, the thing is, right, sport has short contracts and also has the ability to trade people in a way that most work environments are like, hmm, we're going to yeah. have to HR this situation through yeah. a long period of yeah. annoying meetings. But um, I do get that, but uh, even yeah. so... <laughs> yeah, but I think the, the culture change and you isolate people by having a good culture and people exactly. who are outside that then feel like they either have to change or they move on and yeah. Yeah, people get the message pretty quickly. Um, that positivity isn't something that always sits well with uh, Northwestern Europeans like us. We're, all, we're always very sceptical of the energy of Americans like that, but you can see why sports teams are like, well, if we can just get everybody on the same, yeah. On yeah. The same buzz here. Yeah, and I think, I think you know, John's message is, when you read his books, it is um, a very simple message. You know, the books aren't complex, and uh, you know, I've read a lot of leadership books, um, and his were, were good, they were practical, they made sense. Um, he talks about um, communicate to connect to commit, and you know, even if you just remember that, you wouldn't go far wrong. Communicate well with the people in your organisation from top to bottom. Uh, connect with them, so find that time during the day to spend to spend time, or do the three H's exercise, or whatever it is to to, to get to know each other a bit better. Um, go out for a few beers, whatever it is, you know, whatever it takes. Um, build those bonds, um, and then you get the commitment that you need. Um, and I think it starts with the leader, and I think that's the point John makes. Stuart Christoph. Thank you. Leaders' Questions with Stuart Lancaster. Thanks to Cisco Systems at Exertus Ireland, providing a secure, intelligent platform for digital business. To hear more, visit intelligentit.ie.